You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Star Wars. It means family. <laughs> the emotion of it all. Making a film with people that you really love. And this is the last one. Like, it's crazy. What are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look. The feeling on set is one of joy. I really like with this film that we get a lot more scenes together, especially myself, Oscar and Daisy. The dynamic between us three is capturing some of that spirit of the original films. It feels like kids are going on an adventure. Cut. That was great. And then it was fun too, because I hadn't properly worked with Oscar before. And he and John are hilarious. That's my boy, man. We can be a bit cheeky sometimes. <laughs> but as long as he's right next to me, I can do anything. Backwards. <laughs> the Star Wars universe has created friendships that have lasted for 40 plus years. I've fallen deeply, deeply in love with this man. So to capture that spirit and bring it to a conclusion has been such an amazing task. It felt nice to stand there with Daisy and Oscar and we're kind of like, whoa, wow, like this is truly the end of our contribution to this saga. But the legacy will carry on. Hi everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we have a long overdue review of the novel movie adaptation of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. This is going to be a good one again. We've done all these before with the other films and hopefully this kind of puts the last period on the end of the Skywalker saga sentence that we've been working on for such a long time now. I hope you guys enjoy it. So let's get started. Plato, Mirada, You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books. Magazines, periodicals, newspapers. Okay, we are going to talk about Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker by Ray Carson. This is the book, the novel, the novelization. The expanded edition. Expanded edition is something 
somewhat new lately. I know that they've been using it frequently now with the Star Wars books, starting with The Last Jedi, I believe. And I know I have this whole theory about how the expanded edition came about as a way of trying to fix all the criticisms of The Last Jedi. And I talked to a friend of mine, if you guys remember Steve, who, you know, he did a little research and looked into the fact that the page count seemed to be the same when the book was first announced months before and when the book was actually put out later. So that seemed to kind of discredit the theory that any revisions could not have been made because of the fact that the page count is the same. Now, I've been thinking of that about that for a while now, and even with this book, I have a feeling that my theory might still hold <laughs> until somebody completely can disprove it or prove it. And that is because even though the, you know, the page count could be the same, in other words, this particular book has a total of 247 pages, you know, from page one of the book, which is really, if you think about it, page one in this book is just the title, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. The back of that page is blank. Then you have a page of what is, I guess, the crawl of the movie. Okay. And then the back of that page is blank. And then you have chapter one. Well, what I think could happen here is that... Between these first four pages, if you will, there's plenty of room, if need be, to kind of put some of this together. You know, if all of a sudden Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker, and The Crawl were to put on the same page, that means that you now have one, two, three pages of blank page material that you could work in. Furthermore... All of these chapters seem to start, and they're laid out, formatted, I guess, a certain way, so that the chapter always seems to start about a third of the page into the page. That's how they lay out chapter one, chapter two, and then the text comes afterwards. Well, that is interesting, because if you think about it, if the chapter were to start on the top of the page... All of a sudden, you got like, what, 19 chapters in this book? Yeah, I think you have 19 chapters. Yes, you do have 19 chapters. So that means there's an additional 19 pages where you can take a third. You can reclaim, theoretically, a third of those pages. So a third of 19 is what? Six, more or less? Okay, so now you got six pages. Think about this. Six pages you can reclaim, plus the four we just talked about before. That's 10 pages. But wait, there's more. Every chapter does not end at the bottom of the page. Sometimes it might, but sometimes the chapter could end in the middle. It could end on the top. A chapter could end just about anywhere on a page randomly, depending on how much was written. So out of those 19 chapters, let's just play it safe and say that you can maybe reclaim half of those pages. So that means that there's possibly another 10 pages. So you got like six plus four plus 10. So you could have up to 20 pages. And I know this number is, it's out there. It could be a little more, it could be a little less. 
But at least we know that there's 10 pages. So let's just say 15 to play it safe. You could have up to 15 pages here where if at a certain point, just like in The Last Jedi, somebody were to say, well, why didn't they explain this? And why didn't they explain that? There's plenty of room to do that if you know how to format a book. You can't come up with extra space. You know, 15 pages of written material is quite a lot. And a lot of times in this book, what I'm finding is that some of those questions that I wondered about, which we're going to go over them, you know, throughout the book, th that I would say to myself, oh, well, they didn't explain this. And, and how could this happen without an explanation? They do explain these things, but it doesn't take 15 pages to explain them. A lot of these things that I'm talking about might be just a sentence, maybe two, three sentences together. Rarely is it an entire paragraph of information. So I think I'm going to hang on to my theory a little longer that these books, the reason why they are expanded editions and they are released way after the movie has come out is because I think, again, I'm just throwing it out there, that they are making revisions after the fact. They are trying to answer the questions that people come up with after the movie comes out. So I'm just throwing that out there. But anyway, let's get started with the book itself. And what I'm going to go through is obviously not the entire story because we've heard the story many times. This is probably the what? Third, fourth, fifth. I lost track already. What version of this story, <laughs> or this movie really that I've talked about with you guys? There were many, many questions. I don't want to say as many as with The Last Jedi, because you guys remember my feelings about this movie is that I enjoyed it more than The Last Jedi. However, I did not enjoy it as much as The Force Awakens. My biggest complaint in this movie is that it felt very rushed, very crammed, and it also felt like there were certain sections where he was just... J.J. Abrams was just trying super hard, noticeably hard, to make corrections to what happened before with The Last Jedi. That was my main complaint about the movie. A third of the movie, I think, if I remember right, rushes so fast, events move so fast that I honestly felt this could have been two movies. They could have pulled a Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings where you shoot this movie I don't know, maybe you got over four hours worth of footage or whatever, and just turn it into a part one and a part two. Especially if this is the end of the Skywalker saga, why not go for a two-shot? Who the hell cares? The fans will go see it. And this way, it doesn't have to feel so rushed, especially, again, in the beginning. The way the book is laid out at the start is a little different than the movie. The book starts with Leia and Rey training. And this is taking place in Ajan Kloss. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's the planet, that very uh, gardenish, uh, tree green, tropical planet that they're in. And there's a lot of reminiscent from Leia about her training with Luke. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. We don't see any of that till way later in the movie. But right off the beginning in here, they're already talking about that. And that was something I remember that when I was watching the movie, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. She trained with Luke and they never talked about it before? This is all a surprise now? It's like, okay, 
All right, let's keep going with it. I know it's part of the the uh, Mary Poppins. You know, when you when you give her so many force powers, then you have to somehow, I guess, back it up again. I don't know if this is retroactive continuity. Uh, if they're trying to kind of cram this in or not, was this the plan all along? I don't think so. But they're trying to make it work. So okay, you go with it. But in the book, yeah, there's a lot more of that in the beginning. And it's funny because there are certain lines where Leia is remembering how Luke would describe like the planets they were on as nice Dagobah. In other words, it's it's a very, you know, lush planet, except it wasn't as inhospitable (laughs) as Dagobah. And he's training her and he's trying to do some of those exercises if you remember that Yoda did with him during Empire and and Leia is kind of bragging about the fact that she's able to hang upside down and I think she's also kind of making the uh, some of those rocks rise around her and Luke teases her that well that's good and everything but you know what when I did it with Yoda you know Yoda was actually standing on my feet so it's kind of like this little uh, uh, competing, uh, you know, brother and sister thing of who can do it better kind of kind of banter going on. Which again, we never saw that. We never really get the interactions between the two, other than that scene that comes later where they're training with the helmets and the lightsabers and everything. But it, yeah, it, it makes sense in a way that you couldn't put that in the movie because you can't have them talking to each other again. You know. The CGI can only go so far. You can get away with them being younger, you know, on a book. Because the book is a book. But in a movie, you got to show them younger. And if you guys remember, in this movie, in my opinion, the CGI for Luke was excellent. When when they pull up their, 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 their helmets, you know, you could see their faces. The one for Leia, not so great. But the Luke one, for some reason, came out really good. And obviously, then you have the voices. You can't do the voices. What are you going to do with Carrie Fisher? You're going to have to find somebody who can double her voice, really. And I don't know if, I don't think I've ever heard anyone successfully, you know, do a good impression of Leia's voice. And there is an ongoing thing in this training, which I guess, you know, they're trying to build up what happens at the end of the movie, where Ray is trying to contact the Force Spirits, you know what I mean? Which, again, she does it later in the movie, but I guess in the book, they're trying to kind of plant the seed that this is a trick that she cannot do yet, you know? And then it, I guess it would make much more sense at the end. It's more dramatic for her to be able to do that that feat, you know, that, that was really cool at the end. Next on the book, you have Mustafar. <laughs> oh, wow. We're in Mustafar now, which is really weird because this is where the movie begins. So again, the movie starts with Mustafar, not Ray training. Here they gave you a pre-training sequence, uh, you know, a pre-Mustafar sequence. But anyway, what's interesting is that in the book, they specifically tell you this is Mustafar. In the movie, you see this red planet. And if you're a, a Star Wars geek, you could say... Is that Mustafar? Could that be Mustafar? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it is not. Who knows? If you were watching Solo, on the other hand, they do give you locations. But for this movie, I guess it's because it's the the trilogies. They're they're sticking to not telling you, not giving you a you know the text of where certain places are located. But we learned that Kylo Ren is walking through the woods of Corvax Fen. Oh, okay. And the the people he's fighting against, you know, with the stormtroopers that are with him, 
first order troopers, whatever. They're barbarian colonists. Interesting. So these are colonists that went on to colonize Mustafar. You know, they're kind of Sith worshippers, cultists, whatever the heck it is that they're supposed to be. And in the book, Hux and General Pride, the new character you know, for this movie, they're kind of at a far, I guess. I don't know if I forget if it's either from the ship or from a faraway location. They're kind of watching as Kylo Ren is just like cutting through, mowing through his opponents. And there's a quote from Pride that he's almost beautiful to watch. It's like, oh, okay. So now they're establishing that Pride is like a nut job. You know, he's beyond beyond Hux in terms of his, you know, devotion to his, you know, Kylo Ren's cruelty and, and, and you know, the way that he is and everything. So, okay, we get it. We understand. Again, the, these barbarians that he's fighting, they're, they're, they're referred to as Vader cultists. And they kind of let you know that after this forest section, and this is a weird thing because you're supposed to be somewhere near the remains of Vader's castle, but a little far away from it. So this is kind of like a weird area where for some reason, trees started to grow. You know, something's happened to the climate that things are starting to grow there. But they're like, these trees are like black and burnt and everything still smells like, I guess, because of the lava flow everywhere, you know, from the, from the other areas. It's still kind of a very inhospitable environment. So... As Kylo defeats these cultists, he walks now towards a different area and he has to kind of cross this kind of like a lake. So get this. In the lake, this creature comes out called the Eye of Webbish Bog. And according to the book, it's a giant hairless creature with a spider kind of tentacle thing on his shoulder. And he gives Kylo the location of where he can find the Wayfinder because it's kind of like you're the chosen one that's supposed to come and, you know, retrieve Darth Vader's Wayfinder, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's almost like a reverse uh, Excalibur kind of thing, I guess, where it's like, okay, that, I don't know. And he tells them that by getting this Wayfinder, he's going to be able to find the location of Exegol. You know, the the place where this apparent message that is coming from this alleged emperor is coming from. Because remember, this whole thing stems from a message that, that this that's being transmitted through the galaxy that the emperor is back. And he's going to kick everyone's ass or something. I don't know. So from there, after he crosses that river, that's when he gets to the area where... You know, I I don't think there's any more trees, but it's like the ruins or whatever's left of Vader's castle. In the movie, it's like three steps. He he jumps one, two, three, and he's there. He goes from the forest to the castle, but we never see the difference. It's just one continuous, very fast movement. But in the book, it gives you a little more of a description of the fact that he's going from one area to another area to a third area. Once he gets to Exegol and he starts chatting with the emperor they refer to him recognizing that device that the emperor is attached to as a mecha spine worn by ancient sith kings oh okay so even that machine according to the book is something that a person that follows the sith would recognize okay that's interesting 
Going back to Ray now, I think this might be around her training or right around that time when she's again she's back in in uh, in the training planet. She talks about how they they talk about how she uh, is planning on building her lightsaber, a new lightsaber, but she wants to kind of base it on her staff, uh, her was it a quarter staff or something like that? I forget what it's called. However, they do talk about the fact that she wants to make it so that it has two parts and that it folds so that. When the staff is fully extended, it would have like two blades. You think something like a Darth Maul kind of double bladed, but it would not always stay in that position so that she would be able to fold it kind of like a hinge in the middle. And this is important because, again, this is giving us a hint of that vision that she has of the Sith version of her with that red one with that folds in the middle. This is exactly, you know, they're giving us that little that little seed to kind of plant in our in our in our mind the chase of the falcon escaping the uh, that mission that they were they went to get that information and all of a sudden they start doing those hyper jumps those hyperspace skipping i think they called it and one of the first questions that i remember came to me after watching that was wait a minute tie fighters never had hyperdrive that's not in the original trilogy, and up to this point, not in the sequel trilogy. And they have not. <laughs> I checked. I checked everywhere. And they have not. In other words, the current reference material that's out there never made a a reference to whether or not uh, these um, TIE fighters were different. Well, the book drops this little line in there, something about how the TIE fighters now have a hyperdrive. It's like, okay, here we go. So again, these are the things that as I'm reading, and it's like kind of like saying, if I had a checklist of complaints, somebody's just checking off, okay, he can't complain about this anymore. Check. Can't complain about that anymore. Check. (laughs) Is it possible that the, the writer, again, I don't know if the writer saw the movie or read the script when putting the book together. I don't know. But is it possible that either seeing the movie or reading the script, the writer started having the same questions that other people, including myself, had and started just trying to answer those questions as the writer was, she was putting the book together. You know, oh, what about this? Okay, let's make a line about that. And then you submit that to the publisher and the publisher is like, yeah, okay, fine. That's cool. You can put that there. Yeah, I mean, could it be a coincidence? I I, I guess it could. Or it could be what I said earlier. This is a book that's been altered after the fact. Who knows? One of those planets, when they're doing that hyperspace skipping, that they quickly, quickly uh, go to. And, and, and it's one of those, you know, you blink and you miss it kind of things. It almost looked as if like there were two falcons flying because it, it looks like they were, they were flying over water. It must have been what I was convinced it was must have been like some kind of water thing. Well, there's something called the mirror spires of Ivexia. Okay, so I guess that's what it is. It's I don't know if it's water again, I don't know. It could be some kind of crystal ground formations or water or mirror. I don't know. Because it is built into the name of it. And I guess it was it was impressive enough for the writer to say, hey, I better give this thing a name because it's so impressive. And it was impressive. And again, it was so fast that you don't even have a good chance to have a good look at it. That's how crazy fast these things go. Now, technically, this is where the movie starts. 
with some of, the, you know, with Ray at this point, more or less, uh, starting her training after this, this entire sequence of events. Then we jump to a scene where Kylo has brought the remains of his helmet that I think he destroyed himself in the previous film to this creature that seems to be kind of fixing it. Well, in the book, they call him a Sith alchemist, Albrecht. He's a Simong. I don't know. I, again, I, I don't think I've ever heard of this race, this creature. A lot of these background information can also be found on the Visual Dictionary. But one of my biggest complaints with the Visual Dictionary, which I think I complained about it before, is that at the time of the Visual Dictionary being put out, you would credit everything that's put out on the Visual Dictionary to Pablo Hidalgo because he's the one that writes the dictionary. So... I think, I am pretty certain that the the writer of this book used the Visual Dictionary, you know, a, as part of the source material uh, for her book. Yes, there are things that she was able to make up on her own, but there are things that she was able to use the dictionary for people's names or very specific, you know, technological uh, descriptions or items that, you know... Why make it up if it already exists somewhere? So, like I said, including the names of certain characters. And one of the most frustrating things about the Visual Dictionary is that there were certain key things, very important things, like the Emperor, for example, where the dictionary really doesn't dip into at all. I've been trying to do some research, and I found a little bit. On the Emperor's Guards, the Royal Guards, if you will, the ones that are in this film that, you know, forget about Blink and you miss them. You miss them. You just plain and simply miss them because there's a battle scene at the end where Rey is fighting them, kind of like they she sort of did before in, in Last Jedi, if you remember the Red Guards. But it's so fast that it is practically impossible to get a good image of them. You have to go on the internet and do some serious research to get a, a good description of what these things look like, which if you're curious, they kind of look like the, the new Sith troopers, those red ones, except that they carry a real funky looking gun and the helmets have on either side these very smooth sides, similar to the short trooper that was introduced in Rogue One. But anyway, I digress. Kylo Ren kills Bulio, the guy with the big horns that we just initially see him give the spy information, and then later we see his head being plopped on a table. Well, in the book, you have a sequence where he actually kills him. So we get to see that on the book. Again, this is a perfect example of how the Visual Dictionary gives us uh, most likely this information. Uh, Ray has a friend. His name is Belmont, who's played by, I forget the actor's name, from Lost and Lord of the Rings. Um, and he's supposed to be a historian and a curator of resistance intelligence. And he's been studying the Sith language to try to translate certain writings and blah, blah, blah. But obviously, it's, it's, it's a little difficult. But he's a character that kind of appears more, a little more in the book, you know, here and there. In the movie, it's almost like a cameo because he's got like two, three lines. And then you, it's like, wow, they hired this, they hired this really cool actor and you can barely, they barely got to use him. Which is another problem I have with, I think it was Carrie Russell who plays uh, Zori. I mean, but again, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
there's a couple of sequences where Ray refers to or or it's implied that the Falcon is her ship. And when Poe comes back and, and the Falcon is kind of like on fire, she's all pissy. I don't know, but personally to me, and I know I, I know that it's it was perceived that way, but personally to me, it's Chewie's ship, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I mean Han died, it's Chewie's ship. I, I don't think that there was any kind of formal Chewie handing the ship over to her, or he's I mean, maybe he's acting more as a willing co-pilot he maybe he doesn't want to be the captain he wants to be just a co-pilot i don't know but in the book it is it is implied a little stronger that she has you know a personal connection to that ship whatever connection it is that she formed with with solo for that brief amount of time here they're kind of implying that it's you know she's getting more and more attached to the ship there's also in the book a little more of the rose and Ray interactive scenes, which, yeah, this is going to be something that in the movie, they're going to cut so much of Rose that, again, she's almost like a cameo because so little things she has to do. And I know that I, from what I've read that the reason why they had to do that was because they used a lot of footage to be able to kind of marry it with the engineered footage of Carrie Fisher to be able to put her with other actors. So it kind of limited, you know, how much airtime she could get because of that for for whatever reason. But in the book, like I said, there are more short interactions where Rose is a little more prominent. Not necessarily important in what she's doing. It almost feels a little bit like filler. Like, yeah, okay, a little interaction. So everybody gets everybody gets their moment of, of chatting and being friendly with each other, that sort of thing. And not just with Ray. I mean, I'm talking about with every, with Finn, with Poe, you know, everybody. Everybody has their little their little five minutes. And they even imply in one of these lines that that even Leia has had kind of let Ray make the Falcon her own. Again, we never get that in the movie. The movie is kind of like boom. It's like wait, she's the captain now, and Chewie's next to her. Okay, I guess that's how they they're doing it. In the book, they try to kind of smooth those rough edges. That's what it again. That's a that's a great example. It, rough edges. The book is trying to just like JJ was trying to fix Ryan Johnson's decisions, you know, story idea decisions. The book is kind of doing the same thing now with JJ's decisions. They're trying to smooth out those rough edges. Yeah, that's that's kind of what it feels like. When we meet Lando, we get a whole backstory, which we also got when we read the Visual Dictionary. You guys remember this, this whole thing about Lando having a daughter. And the First Order, like, I guess, kidnapping children or something, and children disappeared and and his daughter is one of them and he's been looking for her all these years and blah 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 so again i read that the first time on the visual dictionary so it's i don't think it's an original idea for the book the biggest new things in the book if you really really think about it, as far as sequences go what i which i think must have came from the writer is that entire opening sequence we talked about earlier the more of the training stuff because again, I, I've, I've yet to see a, a, a shot by shot. This came from the script. This came from the movie. This came from the originality of the author. Or this came from the visual dictionary. You know, Pablo Hidalgo. Who knows? I don't know. One interesting uh, bit that, again, blink and you miss it. The um, tread speeders, those uh, tread 
speeders that the um, First Order troopers are riding, chasing them through the desert. They have shields, uh, which is something that you barely see. You know, she's shooting and Poe is shooting, and you barely see the fact that these bullets seem to be bullets, uh, bolts, laser bolts or blaster bolts. They, they seem to be not exactly hitting the vehicle, but stopping like a few inches be you know before the surface and these little white kind of shields but i'm but again you're talking about a second it's like one second and it's gone you, you don't get it too many times to notice it but once again on the visual dictionary even though they don't go crazy about it in the description of some of the parts of the tread speeder you do see something about it like a shield generator or something like that and and they talk about how they're rare because uh, usually shields are reserved for space vehicles and they're very different again this is the uh, the visual dictionary for an environment that has so much sand and you know a ground environment and the atmosphere the the shield technology doesn't work as well because it gets contaminated easily and they have to Anyway, it's all the uh, technical mumbo-jumbo that, that you have to write to kind of make sense of the science that doesn't exist, you know, of what's going on. At Kijimi, we jump to Kijimi now, uh, Zori, who is the, uh, the, the ex-girlfriend of Poe, there's a lot about her and a friend that she has called Luda, a girl, who she's kind of like her trainee, her... It's like a mentor uh, relationship they have, and they're both like thieves and whatever. But one is much younger, and she's kind of learning from her. There's a lot of that in in the uh, description and in the um, the way that 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 we get to meet more of her her friends, and that she does have this one friend that she's really attached to, you know, as opposed to the other regular thieves. This one she really likes. She kind of takes her under her wing, kind of thing. Oh. Uh, here's one that I forgot. In the movie, you, you, if you remember, there is a Mon Cal individual that has a couple of lines. I think Poe says, "Hey, get me the blah blah blah" or something, and he's. I think he's dressed like a pilot, and he runs a does gets the thing. He does have a line at some point later. Well, in the book, Visual Dictionary, but here in the book itself, his name is Aftev Akbar, and he is the, I guess, the son of Admiral Akbar. This is at Agent Kloss. Uh, this is again back at the, uh, at that planet. Uh, yeah, they, they, the book tries to flesh him out a little more. I believe he has the amount, the same amount of appearances as he did in the movie, but here it's a little more. Pro again, if you don't have the visual dictionary, this is completely new information for you because in the movie you wouldn't have known that. You were like, okay, that's just some other creature guy that looks like someone else. But with the book, they are confirming that or they are, again, it depends where you're coming from. If you're jumping off the visual dictionary, you already kind of knew that, but it was visual dictionary canon. <laughs> I don't know if we want to come down this rabbit hole, but now by putting it in the book, it becomes even more official. In other words, you could always a lot of times say, well, with the visual dictionary, people are being very creative and you know what, who cares? That kind of creativity. But with a book... It's like you're now reinforcing it, so you're making it even, even more important. Granted that we know that the ultimate canon is what's on the film or in the TV show or whatever that happens to be that you're watching. Books, even adaptations of films, 
I don't think you can go 100% canon on them because they are things that have happened in the past. Remember when Obi-Wan was supposed to be Darth Vader's brother or something like that? You know, it's like, really? Anakin's brother was Obi-Wan in the Return of the Jedi book? That's why you can't do that. And that's why I think maybe to this day, you can't assume that the extra stuff that's written in these books is necessarily canon because it might have been invented by the writer or it could have came from a deleted scene in the movie which again a deleted scene sometimes is not canon either so it's a it's a fine line that you have to walk the book references the UATT walkers which are these walkers you see very briefly they're kind of like like the ATSTs, that kind of two-legged chicken walkers, but these have a big claw in the front. You get to see them through two buildings at one point, and you see them from far away, but you never get a nice, clean look at them in the movie. In the visual dictionary, you do, and at least in the book, they confirm the name, so you know exactly what you're dealing with. There's a whole sequence where, when Chewie gets captured and brought to the uh, First Order ship, where Kylo is taunting him and kind of torturing him because he's trying to find out the information of where they are, uh, where Ray is, or something like that, and he apparently extracts the information that he wants in the same manner that he did to Poe in the first film, where he kind of like uses the Force to extract it from Chewie's head. There are certain lines here which bothered me in the movie, and, and they kept them in the book, where Poe tells C-3PO, move your metal ass. And then he replies, how dare you? We've only just met. Again, I, I don't like it when they do that sort of thing. When they use, is it colloquial terms? Is that what it's called? When you use a, a term that is very of your time in a sci-fi or fantasy setting, I thought that they had people, because I remember reading about this, like, I think it was for Star Trek or something, for the TV show, that there was somebody's job was to go through the scripts and peel away any reference that is too modern or too of the time that doesn't belong in a show like Star Trek. I thought that they would do that for Star Wars films, that you wouldn't say certain things. And don't, don't get me started, because I, I remember, I, th I don't know if it was Force Awakens or Last Jedi, where there was something, like the, the your mama thing with, with Poe. It was like, oh no, did he just do a, a your mom thing? It's like, that's just a little too of our time, you know, to fit in a Star Wars world. But anyway... Kijimi also has an entire sequence where when the planet is going to hell, basically, when the when the troops are coming in and when they're evacuating because they're about to destroy the planet, there's an entire sequence in the book where Zori has an escape plan and she's trying to get in touch with the rest of her group to tell them all to get out of there and she's able to tell some of them. But then she gets in touch with the, this other girl, Luda. And they're going to escape together, but then something goes wrong and Luda decides that she's going to be like a distraction so that Zori can get out to her Y-Wing, which at this, at this point, we don't know she has a Y-Wing. Uh, we found out later in the movie she has a Y-Wing in Visual Dictionary. <laughs> you can find that out there too. But anyway, so it also gives you this kind of sad scene where the it seems as if the... This younger girl kind of sacrifices herself to become the distraction so that Zori can get out. Uh, so that adds a little more drama to, to Zori's background, I guess. And at the last minute, she finds Babu. 
And that's how it ends right there. So you're like, oh my God, what would happen? Like, we, don't, we do know. Again, you watch the movie and that's how she ends up with Babu on the same ship. It's because once she couldn't get to the other girl, she goes back to the, the shop and, and gets, I guess, I guess she's able to rescue Babu Free. There's a quick little sequence where one of the uh, First Order captains, I think, let's see, Chesil Sabrand. I don't even know these names. But anyway, in the Visual Dictionary, they gave her a name. There's plenty of actors in costumes. They gave her a name. She appears and she's wearing the uniform. And in the book, they give her this little sequence where she's talking about how all of these different uh, people have been conscripted, you know, from the unknown regions and how they got all these children from different places and they basically turned them into soldiers and that sort of thing and officers. And so it's kind of like it, it gives it, it ties in the whole kidnapping of children thing that most likely connects to the Lando information that we hear earlier on in the book. We also find out that Wexley is... Wedge's stepson, which is interesting. In the Visual Dictionary, it just talks about him being his mentor. But I guess uh, the writer was able to kind of push that a little further in the story. So, okay, that's interesting too. He's got, you know, a couple more lines here or there. You know, no big deal. There's a sequence where Lando is able to tour the Falcon, you know, before the big battle. And there's a lot of him kind of reminiscing about all the changes that are made. He kind of points out all the things that Han Solo changed and what it used to look like before. And there's a sequence where he kind of talks about his closet, if you remember that closet where he had all his clothes and his capes, and how Han turned it into Chewie's quarters. So it's it's that's a cute little sequence because it connects it so much to the solo film. It gives Lando a little more heft because he really didn't get that much. I mean, he got a good little part, but it would have been nice to have more of him. And and this again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about this should have been a two-part movie. This should have been a bigger movie. So so you can expand on these things a little more. When Ray goes to and again, I'm, I'm going to skip a lot of stuff because there were a lot of sequences that were pretty much exactly like they were in the movie. But I'm trying to focus on the things that were a little different. But the sequence where Ray goes back to Act 2 and uh, Luke elevates the X-Wing so she can get out on the X-Wing. Well, they do make a, a, a point here, which was one of my, you know, things that were that I was stuck on. And that is that... It does say that that Ray needs has to patch one of the wings because Luke has a chunk of the wing that he's using as a door in his hut. Uh, so they do say that she does that. But they also say that the burned TIE fighter that she used to get there, the one she stole from Kylo Ren, that she also had to use some of those burned parts or those par- parts that survived to be able to revive that X-Wing too. So these things are happening very fast. But in reality, they're taking time because there's a lot of work that needs to be done. <laughs> this is kind of like that whole that whole question that we always have about how long did it take uh, Han and and Leia to get to Cloud City? How much time did Luke spend in Dagobah? Did it take a week? Did it take a month? You know, <laughs> that's what's funny. It is, it, same thing is happening here. There are a lot of things that are happening that are happening so fast because they're they're trying to cram, I think, too much into it. 
we have a sequence I mentioned earlier where Ray does fight the Emperor's guards. And yeah, once again, I wish they would have been a little more. The, one of the best things, and this is one of the only <laughs> things that I will always love about The Last Jedi, is that fight with the Praetorian guards. I absolutely love that fight. I love the way it looked. I loved it. Here, there is a very small version of that fight, but it is it goes so fast that you never really get a good look at those fighters. And I love it when they do these new uniforms and armor and all that kind of stuff. And it was just so disappointing that, you know, they weren't able to show it to you that well. There is also more information where the Emperor talks about Darth Plagueis and how he's the one that killed him, which we, you know, again, that's a reference to the Darth Plagueis book. Which is very interesting because it's also a reference to the Revenge of the Sith film, which is that's where the book, you know, jumps from. Uh, so it's interesting that they tried to tie those things together. Another one of my pet peeves uh, was that after Rey and Kylo have their battle and Rey steals his ship after she cures him and he has his chat with, you know, Ghost Han Solo. I kept saying, how the hell did Kylo then get to Exegol? Because she stole his ship. There's no ship. Well, in the book, they make a reference to how he was able to find a TIE fighter <laughs> in that wreck and resurrected long, you know, enough to get him to fly over there. Now, you might also be wondering, well, hold on a second. She has the Wayfinder. <laughs> so how does he get there? So I, I, I don't remember exactly what kind of answer they gave you, but it was something kind of like, it might be something like, well, he already knew how to get there. He'd been there once before and he kind of knew the coordinates or something like that. And that, but again, it's like, how much time would it take him to find a, a working TIE fighter in the wreck of the Death Star? Uh, okay, fine. Again, check. <laughs> Hey, how come the blah, blah, blah? Check. There's your answer. Move on to the next thing. Okay, I'm moving on to the next thing. <laughs> At Exegol, when we have that final duel, there is quite a, a bit of information about how the Emperor, as he was being thrown into the pit by Vader in uh, Return of the Jedi, as how he was able to leave his body somehow before the body hits the floor... But his soul, let's say, or his force essence, whatever you want to call it, flies off to Exegol. Because apparently Exegol has been there all along. Exegol has been cooking. These weird cultists that live in Exegol have been baking kind of clones, not very successful, very messy so they were able to put him in a body to start kind of reconstructing him. But that's how you go from the Death Star, Death Star number two, to Exegol. It, it wasn't like somebody went and grabbed him and brought him back and pieced them together. It wasn't like uh, like Darth Maul cutting half and then reassembled, you know, machine No, this was a little more supernatural, if you will, according to the book. It was that's how it worked, his his soul, his force essence. And they talk about all these other experiments that they did trying to create a body for him and how 
they didn't work. But there was this one body that was kind of a healthy body, but it just wasn't good enough for the purposes. And that kind of became his son. So they sent him away, which is like, really? They sent him away? So they sent this clone away. I don't know if you could call him a clone because I don't think he's supposed to look like the emperor. But I guess there would be enough DNA of the emperor to be technically related to him, even though he doesn't look like him. And if you look at the uh, the footage of of, of the the flashback of of the mother and the father as the you know as they're getting rid of their daughter, the actor really looks nothing like what what a young Palpatine would look like. But I guess the implication is that. That particular being they created, the the clone, if you want to call it a clone, was just not good enough to be able to hold the soul of the emperor, to withstand the power of the emperor. So why wouldn't they just get rid of it like garbage? Because these guys are crazy anyway. But it's almost as if they purposely let him go out there. And then when they realized that he made a family and had a daughter... And they realized that the daughter then, wait a minute, the daughter now, she can withstand the power and be able to to transfer his power to her. That's, again, how this whole thing works. You know, this is plan, what I refer to plan A. Plan A is destroy me and my power and the power of all the Sith will flow to you. Ah, you know, that kind of... Okay, that's how they're kind of giving us the background of of how Plan A was supposed to work. See, I thought that the son would have been somebody who Palpatine had a relationship while he was still somewhat human. But you would have to think, I mean, it would be kind of really weird. Because if you think about it, if you think about it, how old would Ray have to be? So this movie takes 30 years. Yeah, it would have been really weirdly weird. <laughs> I think Palpatine would have been old man Palpatine, like Return of the Jedi Palpatine, to be able to have somebody to give him a child, which makes it even creepier, I guess. <laughs> he wouldn't have been prequel Palpatine. Let's think about prequel Palpatine. No, 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 no. The H doesn't work. There's no way in hell that prequel Palpatine, pre-lightning hitting him in the face Palpatine, would have had some kind of relationship that would have given him a son. And let's say the son 20 years later is what? Han Solo's age? Uh, Maybe. But it's not 20 years later. It's more than 20 years later. Yeah, I don't think it works. He, he would have... Yeah, he, he would have to be Return of the Jedi Palpatine. So, yeah. So, that's why they wrote this about how the kid is basically... His son is basically a clone because it, it just doesn't add up. The ages don't, don't, don't work too well. Okay, here's an interesting one. Remember when, when, when you have Janna, who is the, uh, the ex-stormtrooper... First Order Trooper, just like Finn. And they're all riding those crazy horses. And at the end of the movie, the crazy horses end up being on the the attack that they do, that ground assault that they do. Well, in the book, and this is something I never thought of until I was reading the book. And that is, how did those horses get back to the Resistance? 
Well, the ship that was there was the Falcon. So you got to assume that everybody got out of there on the Falcon. But they brought the horses with them in the Falcon. So you're like, all right, think of the Millennium Falcon. And how many horses do you think you can safely pack in there? Plus, remember, there's a full crew of people. All her soldiers are with her. And our good guys are there with her, too. And how many horses? Well... By the time you get to that end battle where they open up the, the that dropship and all the horses come running out, according to the writer, and it's funny because I started watching the movie and I'm playing it very slow to count. I'm, I'm starting to count horses and I'm like, I think there's more than 20 horses here. According to the writer, there's two dozen Orbach riders coming out of that dropship. That's fine. My question is, are we supposed to believe that they stuffed two dozen horses or backs into the falcon to make the trip back to their base with a full complement of crew people there on top of everything that's an interesting thing i I don't think i've heard of anything about another ship coming to pick up the horses while they were there because it's just i know that's something again that's a new one now what's interesting here is also that i used to complain and i still complain in the film Plan A was to get her to kill me and I will transfer my soul to her and I will become a racist or whatever the hell. Anyway, and then all of a sudden, oh crap, that plan didn't work. What's plan B? Plan B, I'm just going to laser you guys and I'm going to rejuvenate myself by hitting you with my lightning weirdness. And it seemed kind of weird to me that it was like plan A and then there's plan B. Well, in the book... What they explain here is that the Emperor was surprised about the dyad in the Force. Now, the dyad in the Force is something that Kylo mentions a number of times in the book. I don't remember if he mentioned it in the movie, if he actually used that word. And that is about the connection of those two, how things get weird when those two are together. And when they get this Force connection between the two, things happen. Powers come that they never had before. They're able to share each other's powers and be in each other's areas. Well, according to the book, when those two are together, they come to attack him and everything. He starts to feel that power and he's able to then suck that power out of them. And that is how plan B comes about. When plan A goes out the window, when she will not allow him to do that, and then he says like, and he makes them all float in the air. And as he's float, as they're floating in the air and he's throwing them around, his hands start to rejuvenate themselves. And in the book, he is surprised by that. He's like, but wait a minute. This is kind of neat. This is cool. I think I like this. Hence, plan B. Plan B is formed at that moment as per the book. Is the I can't do this to you. You're not going to let me do the soul transferring thing. So instead, I'm just going to suck the power out of both of you. Okay, interesting. The rebel fleet. This is something that I don't remember hearing in the in the movie. And and I'm not familiar with some of these, but you guys might and they might mean something important to you. When the fleet starts showing up, you know, after everybody's losing hope as usual, you got a whole bunch of people like chiming in on the comm system. And uh, some of them are Phantom Squadron, the Ghost, that I know, that's Rebels. I'm not sure what Phantom Squadron is. Anodyne 2, Alphabet 2, you guys might know these, 
Zayverso with Inferno Squad. Inferno Squad sounds familiar. I think I think these are old book references. Fireball. Again, you guys probably know more than me. Those seem to be shout-outs to other other books, I think, most likely. Let's talk about some of the casualties of that battle. Some of the ones you might know and some of the ones that we didn't know. Well, Wexley unfortunately dies, and that happens on air. We see it on the movie, and it's like, oh, crap. How do you kill this? This is like your lucky charm. Wexley was like the wedge of these films. You don't kill the wedge. Now, granted, wedge did make a quick little appearance, but it makes it even worse now with the book because he's his stepson, and you have a scene of his stepson dying, and then you have him flying around for a second. So it's like, what the hell? How do you do that? I, that was very disappointing. But it gets worse. I remember there is a scene where the Tantive Four, when the Emperor is shooting the lightning and all the ships start to drop and blah, blah, blah. The Tantive Four seems to be ready to crash. I don't know if we see it crash fully on film. But in the book, it definitely crashes. And guess who's piloting that ship? Or who at least is in that ship? Neem Num. <laughs> I heard about this uh, when before this book was released. Like one of the first things people said, they were like, "What? What the hell is this?" Yeah, apparently uh, they decided. Uh, I don't know. Again, I don't know if it was the writer or who, but hey, I'm gonna kill another, you know, beloved character. It's like, oh, that's great. Thanks. It's wonderful. One of the Better sequences of this movie was when all the Jedi start talking to Rey to give her the strength to keep fighting. And, and and in the movie, you hear all these different voices. And the voices are actually recorded, I believe, unless somebody did, you know, you kind of fake them. But uh, it's actual characters. It's all these different Jedi. And you get, you know, you get Mace Windu, you get Yoda, you get this, you get that. And... One of my biggest disappointments in the movie was that they didn't actually use their images. I was hoping that they would do like they were going to do in the original Return of the Jedi script, where the ghost of Ben and the ghost of Yoda, if I remember right, would help battle the Emperor at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi. They never did that, obviously. They never went that way with the film. But because they were trying to use, you know, original material, that throne is right out of the concept drawings of what the Emperor Throne Room was going to look like. That, you know, with the spiky, almost like hand-finger-looking throne. And I thought that's what they were going to do. They didn't do it. I was disappointed. However, there was a video that somebody made, a fan-made video, where that entire sequence was done by somebody where they used footage... And they did it really well of not all of them, but a number of those characters talking to her. And you see them in the Force Ghost manner, you know, coming in and helping her, you know, defend herself. That was actually, that was great. I loved it. In the book, you get all those voices, you get all those lines. But what's super disappointing in the book is that they don't credit those voices to anybody specific. So in the movie... If you're a fan, you can tell who's talking because you recognize the voice. But here you don't. The book should have had something to say, for example, get up, Ray. Luke whispers, you can do it. Mace Windu 
commands. You know, there should have been references to who are the people saying those lines. And for some reason, they didn't do that. I don't understand why. I don't know if it was some kind of, uh, I don't know, some kind of grammatical problem, in, maybe in, in the structure of the sentences or something, or or they just didn't feel like it. I don't understand. I think it would have, that part of the book would have been so much stronger if they would have at least given you the names of the characters. During the the final final sequences, and in, and you have a little bit of that in the in the movie where all of a sudden we see Wicked in Endor, in the moon of Endor, um, watching the sky with what looks like to be another Ewok next to him as the the the, the, the Imperial forces are, are are coming down. In the book, they mention that that's his son, and his name is Pomet. <laughs> so now we know what Wicked's son name is. I'm sure somebody will make an action figure out of him. In the movie, there was also this weird, <laughs> kind of partially creepy scene where Lando all of a sudden starts talking to Janna about, what's your name and who you are? Let's go see if we can find you who you are. And it sounds creepy <laughs> because everything that Lando says sounds like he's trying to hit on you. But in the book, they make it very clear he's not hitting on her. He's just helping her and hopefully anybody else try to locate, you know, all these missing kids that went missing when they started kidnapping children to be recruited into into the, the First Order and all these things. You know, could she be his child? I don't know. There was almost a slight hint. I remember reading some of those passages where... Maybe she's also force sensitive. There was no, you know, there was, there was something about Ray being able to feel her, just like she was feeling some of the other characters, and even Finn kind of making a connection with her, which wasn't necessarily just the stormtrooper connection, the first order trooper, but that there maybe there is something also about her that's special. So again, don't know if they would ever explore that in some other shape or form, or if they would go in the direction of. Could this be Lando's daughter and he doesn't know it? You figured that there would be some kind of blood test they could say, you know, and say, okay, yeah, that's your daughter. Or no, that's not your daughter. You kind of you can kind of answer that question really fast. You don't have to go through an entire movie to figure out if it's your daughter or not. But whatever. I don't know if they'll ever, you know, explore that. And another interesting little tiny tidbit is that at the end of the movie, when Ray goes to Tatooine, and remember, she it's almost like she's delivering the the uh, lightsabers, Luke and Leia's, and the ground just opens up and kind of absorbs them. It was a little confusing to me how that worked. To me, it almost looked like just because that it was that area and because she was in the right place, and whether it's the Force or whatever you want to call it, uh, was kind of there waiting for her. That's kind of how I saw it. But in the book, they, they're a little more direct in the fact that she's making the force open up the ground, the sand, because she is purposely burying these things as part of this ritual. She's got her own lightsaber that she made. She's burying the the past, I guess, in a way. Not not in a Kylo Ren sort of way, but in, 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 in this kind of way. So... Those are the majority of the differences that I was able to find between the novel and the um, and the film. It's a pretty quick read. There are certain sequences that go really fast because there's not too many differences. 
And as I was reading the novel, I was also rewatching the movie in certain instances too, so I can kind of compare, yes, they did this here, or no, they didn't do this here, or they did this out of order. And then I, when I grabbed the visual dictionary, then that threw an entire other layer of it where, you know, I'm, I'm cross-checking all these things. Do I recommend the book? Of course I do. It's a Star Wars book. I'm going to read every Star Wars movie novelization. I might not read every single, and I don't read every single novel they put out. I only grab the big ones that are really, really special because I just don't have the time to do that. If I were to read Star Wars novels, that would be the only thing I would read. And I have so many books I'm trying to read. I sometimes read two or three books at the same time. I keep one in in my nightstand, one in my car, and then one that goes from place to place here or there. But three, I would not recommend reading three books. The worst thing I've ever done was read two books that were both crime novels by the same author. So that was really difficult because I started to get the two stories and the characters all mixed up. But with Star Wars, I will definitely continue to read whatever novels are based on movies that are that are made because that's kind of neat. And sometimes if somebody decides they're going to fill in the gap of something interesting, I'll go take a look at it and give it a try. So yes, I definitely recommend this one. Does it help the book? Does it help the movie? Does it make anything any better? I really can't say because I I will stick to my usual answer and that is that a good movie should not need a book to help the movie be better. Does it make it easier now? Does Do I feel like because I know this information, if I were to watch the movie again, I wouldn't be so critical of them not having certain scenes no you still need those scenes and i i I still feel that what they should have done is they should have made this movie a two-part movie and include more of the material that they jam-packed in there it continues to be to me the second best of the sequel trilogy force awakens number one rise of skywalker number two and last jedi number three so Pick it up. I still feel that my theory might be right, that they were able to fill in those gaps after they had enough feedback from the fans of what the shortcomings of the movie was. And for all we know, this might be a new trend for some of these books where they they will have a little, you know, a safety valve when it comes to, okay, if there are any questions and there are any criticisms, we'll address them on the novel. And we'll just call it an expanded edition because it's going to have extra stuff. And guess what? The extra stuff is exactly the things you guys were complaining about. Who knows? Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We tried our hardest to review the Star Wars Rise of Skywalker expanded edition, I think, is called nowadays. This is the last, obviously, of of this particular trilogy version of the book. I've given you guys as much information as I could and my, my theories of how these books are different now than they used to be. I'm sure, of course, the more movies that come out, the more of these books they'll continue to make. And I wonder if the, you know, the same format will be continue to be used in terms of holding back that book till afterwards. This way they can kind of tweak it. Again, this is me theorizing as usual. But thank you for listening. And we will see you here soon at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Insane! The Star Wars fans.
phenomenon is captivating the Making nation with lights. North America's newspapers is none other than Star Wars Jedi. You can't run from Star Wars frenzy. The very first time I saw the word Star Wars. Two seventeen, take nine. And three, two, one, action. When I was eleven years old. It was in a magazine, and I remember seeing the words and saying aloud. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. Have you even seen Star Wars? She's never seen Star Wars. Here's some money. Go see a Star Wars. Star Wars is just an important part of everyone's history. He signed his action figure. Right here. I sat outside the theater to watch them at midnight with my dad. It was designed to fire the imaginations of every girl or boy who yearns for adventure. People's love for it. It's just massive. Event that has become a cultural phenomenon. Guerra de las Galaxias. This is not a victim, the Schwartz be with you. Star Wars is a, a milestone for people. The Force is with us. I gotta get to Star Wars. You're more than just fans, you're family. <laughs> Red Five standing by. Something that people carry with them now, forever and ever. Now with the final trailer for the Skywalker Saga release. I can still be a part of the family costume. You are my father. The International Space Station watches The Last Jedi. Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father. Ah. It's about family, and that's what's so powerful about it. They're sharing something that moves them. glad that you're finishing, but savoring every moment because you know it is the last. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2020. <laughs>